Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello everyone and welcome back once again to Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast. I am your host, Luke Giaconetti, welcoming you all uh, back once again to the show. I'm glad you decided to check us out today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode, where we got all caught up <laughs> on the IDW Godzilla comic series. There'll be a few more issues of that coming out uh, down the road, so we'll definitely be covering those in a later episode, but this time out we are going to be taking a look at a trio of Godzilla video games, and not just any video games, but portable video games for the Game Boy and Game Boy Color. Uh, I'm a big portable gaming fan myself, so I'm definitely interested in taking a look at these classic Daikaiju video games. We will also be continuing our coverage of Marvel's Shogun Warriors comic series, uh, taking a look at issue number two of the classic import of some Japanese super robots to the uh, United States. Uh, this ep episode is also very uh, worthwhile because we are going... This is the first episode where we are moving off of the 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com site, and 2TrueFreaks is moving to its own domain. Uh, Signore DiManzo has very graciously cut our budget and forced us into this move. We are going to be hosted at 2TrueFreaks.com. So uh, stay tuned at the end of the episode. I'll have a new outro tagged on there, giving you all the information you need as far as moving over to the new host site, 2TrueFreaks.com. So go and check it out. It's a great site. We've got all of our shows up there. Um, it's going to give us a lot more control than we had under Libsyn. We've got some new shows coming in. Uh, my good friend Sean Engel uh, runs the Green Lantern uh, podcast. Just one of the guys. He's going to be joining the network. Uh, Signore DiManzo made him an offer that... Um, that really he probably should have turned down, but didn't. So uh, his losses are gain in that respect. We are going to take a quick break, uh, play a promo for another show, and then we are going to come right back here and get into some uh, portable video game daikaiju fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. Alright, we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. As promised, we're going to take a look at a trio of portable Godzilla video games. I am, as I have always said, a big enthusiast of portable video games. And the King of Monsters has made his way onto several over the years, so we're going to take a look at three of them. Up first is the simply titled Godzilla for the Nintendo Game Boy. Godzilla was developed by Compile and published by Toho back when they had their own software uh, arm and was released in the Japan and the United States in 1990. I'm not sure if it ever made it over to Europe, but it did make it here to North America. The story goes that Godzilla must work his way through a grid of rooms called the Matrix in order to rescue Minya, who is trapped at the center of the Matrix. Along the way, enemies will stop him from trying to advance, but nothing will keep the King of Monsters from rescuing his son. Essentially, the game is an action puzzler, and there are 64 screens of puzzles arranged in an 8x8 grid. Each one of these uh, 
puzzle screens has a number of boulders on it which Godzilla must destroy. Once all of them are destroyed, you can exit the screen. And on each screen are also enemies who will attack you. There are also spikes and pits, which mean instant death. And you have to destroy the boulders in the right order, or else you can get stuck on the stage. You can always, of course, pause and scroll around the screen to see all the layout and try and figure out the best approach. And if you get stuck, you can restart the stage, although that will cost you a life. Uh, in each certain stages, you can sometimes get a power-up to get Atomic Breath, which will let you destroy enemies at range rather than simply punching them, or a Lightning Bolt, which will clear the screen of all the enemies at once. Once the screen is clear of boulders, one or more exits will pop up, and these will determine which room you move to next. There'll be arrows pointing in whichever direction. You have to must, yeah, you must get to the center block to rescue Minya. Now, Godzilla has a number of enemies here. First up is Baragon, who's slow, nothing special. He does have a really funny look. He's got really big goofball eyes, which I think is funny. Uh, Mechagodzilla, who's uh, about as fast as Godzilla. He has a really neat animation where he flips his head back and forth to look around to try and spot the player. Uh, like I said, he moves about as fast as uh, Godzilla, so he's pretty formidable. Angurus, who's uh, got average speed until he gets on the same horizontal level as Godzilla and gets line of sight to him, and then he will charge, at which point he becomes the fastest enemy in the game. Rodan, who of course flies around the stage. Uh, Hedra, who, when you punch him, normally only gets stunned or pushed back, and then he regenerates. So you can't actually defeat Hedra if he's on the screen, just knock him off for a little while. And finally, King Ghidorah. If you're on a screen for about two minutes without exiting, King Ghidorah will appear, and he's actually invincible, and he'll fly around the screen, and once King Ghidorah shows up, you better hope uh, that you're on your way out, because he's very difficult to fight. As I said, this is an action puzzle game, which is one of the strengths of the Game Boy platform. It's similar in a lot of ways to a couple other action puzzle games I really like for the Game Boy, uh, including Snoopy's Magic Show and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Now, I don't think we'd ever mention Godzilla, Snoopy, and Bill and Ted all in the same breath, but there you go. And again, same idea. There are games that are they're fast-moving because they're fairly simplistic in their graphics and their look, uh, and the puzzle aspect means that it's not a lot of uh, platforming or fighting. It's something that's easily handled by the Game Boy's processor. There is a slight difference between the Japanese version and the American version. Uh, the American version has redrawn all the character graphics to make them look more I hate to use realistic because they're still really kind of small, but they don't look chibi like they do in the Japanese version. The Japanese version has a little super deformed version of the monsters. Uh, the cutesy characters, I think, are a better fit for the gameplay than the more serious ones. So I, I much prefer the Japanese version, despite the fact that uh, there's some um, interstitial uh, cut screens and such that are in Japanese, just because I like the super deformed characters. The gameplay is pretty much the same, with one minor exception. Hedra, in the Japanese one, when you punch him, he kind of collapses into a little pile, and then he'll regenerate back up. In the American version, you push him around when you punch him. Uh, I play these games on my Game Boy Advance, and one of the benefits of that is you get Game Boy Color support. So you can apply a little color palette onto the normally monochromatic Game Boy screen. This game works very good with the Game Boy Color um, palette adaption because the graphics are very simple. So all the characters are, you know, one sprite, so they get a color and the background gets different colors. And you can, and there's a couple of different ones. Bionic Commando or Adventure Island 2 seems to be my go-to ones for palette sprites. Uh, for Game Boy Color games, and that really works well here. Uh, the music's really kind of fun as well, kind of, uh, you know, your kind of standard Game Boy fun MIDI music. Yeah, but it, it's it's good. I really like this game. It's it's such a fun little game. It takes the license in a really unexpected direction. Uh, you know, you don't think of action puzzle game when you think of Godzilla. You think of something a little more straightforward. So, But it really suits the platform, as I said. So it's a lot of fun just to pick up and play and work your way through. And all the super deformed enemies just look great. Like I said, Baragon has these really big eyes, and when you punch him, he looks just shocked as he flies off the screen. Um, Anguirus uh, looks almost like a dog just running back and forth when he spots you. Uh, Mechagodzilla is, is the show of Mechagodzilla, so he's very angular. He just looks really great. A lot of fun. Um, the uh, it, the gameplay is very fast. It's not too deep. You know, these aren't puzzles that are going to rack your brain. You know, you might get stuck a couple of times on the stage, but a few times playing through, you'll figure it out. And, uh, and I like that. 
you know, it's not just you got to play through all 64, you've got to get to the middle. So when you end a stage, sometimes you get a choice of which exit to take. Now you get a little bit of strategy. It's like, okay, do I go left or do I go down? You know, that kind of thing. So you look at the grid and try to figure out, well, I'm trying to get here to the middle. What's my best way of doing it? Now, of course, if you're like me, you're going to try and go and play every grid just because you want to be able to uh, have beaten the whole game, you know, not just not just do it. Uh, this game is really worth checking out for Godzilla fans, especially if uh, you're a little bit older and, and you remember the original Game Boy and this type of game, which was very prevalent on the Game Boy. You can find this one on eBay fairly easily just because again it was published here in north america yeah i've seen it go varying in pricing uh i'm not gonna lie i play this on a rom this game is uh you know 23 years old at this point i don't think anybody's losing any money on it uh, i i played on a rom like i said on my game boy advance and it's one of my go-to games if i just need a little diversion killing time or something just uh you know just just to run through the stages for a few minutes um like i said it's a different type of game. I remember at the time that this game came out, a lot of G-Fans kind of derided it for not being an action game, but I think in 1990, this was probably the right move for the Game Boy adaption of a Godzilla game, so I really enjoy this one. Definitely worth checking out. Our next game we're going to take a look at is also for the Game Boy, and is titled Kaiju o Gojira, which translates to King of the Monsters Godzilla, which was developed and published by Bandai and released in 1993 only in Japan. This game has never been exported either to North America or to Europe. Uh, so this is a somewhat harder game to come across, but you can find it online. A side-scrolling game in this game, Godzilla stomps from left to right, standing about three-fourths of the screen in height. He has some basic attacks, including a punch and a kick, and a tail whip, plus his atomic breath, which you can aim straight ahead or up and down at a 45-degree angle. Basically, you move through each stage, uh, five the five stages, each that have regular military enemies who will shoot at you. These are tanks, choppers, jets, that sort of thing. And then a series of monsters to fight, usually ending actually I should say always ending, with a final boss. Each stage also has buildings or structures that Godzilla can destroy, which sometimes can give you power-ups to uh, restore your health. Atomic Breath drains your life gauge, but you can refill it by standing still, which is something you do a lot in this game, is you get attacked, uh, you destroy all the enemies, and you stop for a second to refill your life gauge. Uh, this game is also a lot of fun, but there's some caveats with that. First off, the game is a lot clunkier in controls than the puzzler. It doesn't move nearly as fast. Having such a big Godzilla on screen, he's very well animated. He's a lot of uh, movement and detail, but it suffers in the gameplay a little bit because it just kind of chugs along. Uh, the Game Boy is really not designed for this sort of action. As I said, it, it always worked better with puzzle games. I mean, what was the killer app for Game Boy? It was Tetris, you know? And, and Tetris is fast-moving, but there's not a whole lot of animation when you really get down to it because it's just rotating the blocks. So doing an action game on the Game Boy was always a little bit of a, of a challenge. And here, again, it, it's a good, it, it works fairly well, but I can see where it's kind of pushing the technical limitations of the system. It's still very playable. Please don't misunderstand me. This is a really good game that you can just pick up and immediately get the controls and understand it. It's nowhere near as clunky uh, in its controls as the NES Godzilla game, which we have covered here on this show. That game is notorious for being just kind of stiff and obscure, and whereas this game does have its, you know, kind of Japanese giant monster game tendencies, insofar as you'd think it would be a little bit smoother, and it's not, but it's certainly playable, a lot of fun. Um, and as I said, there, there's five stages with multiple monsters on each in each stage, and that is one of the major draws of this game, is the sheer amount of monsters that you fight, and the attention to detail that these monsters get, because they all look really nice, very well drawn, very well animated in most cases, uh, for the, especially for the Game Boy. And this is towards the end of the Game Boy's life, mostly. I mean, the Game Boy would hang on for a few more years, but it was clear at this point that Nintendo was moving on to the Game Boy Color, and then later the Game Boy Advance. Uh, just to give you a list of, of some of the monsters, our first stage is in Osaka, and uh, we fight Ibra, and then you fight the Batra Larva, you fight the Mothra Larva, you fight the Batra Larva again, 
then you fight Batra in his Imago form, and then the final boss is Mothra in his Imago form. Uh, the second stage is uh, Lake Ashino, and you can take a guess who you're going to fight at parts portions of Lake Ashino. The first enemy is actually the Super X, which is pretty neat. Then you fight Angurus. Uh, then your third monster is the, the first form, Rose form of Biolante, which is pretty neat because she's got a lot of tendrils, actually, so she fights very similar to how she did in the movie. Next you fight, appropriately, the Super X 2, and then your final boss is the final form of Biolante. Again, makes sense. Uh, level 3 is Mount Fuji. And uh, this one's interesting because it switches back and forth between Mount Fuji and I'm not sure what, I guess it's supposed to be Tokyo, but I'm not sure. It just switches back and forth between a city landscape and a mountainous landscape. So first you fight Hedra in his flying form, then Manda, then Gabara. Then you fight a trio of Kamakuras, and I thought that was great. You fight one after the other, the Kamakuras. I'm like, of course Kamakuras comes in threes. Uh, then Kumunga, and then the final boss is the upright form of Hedra. Uh, level four is in Nagoya, and uh, Nagoya is an interesting stage, because there's uh, there's a, you fight nine monsters on this stage. You, first you fight King Ghidorah. You start with King Ghidorah. What does that tell you? Uh, then you fight King Caesar, then Gigan. Then, uh, actually, this one's kind of odd. You fight Jet Jaguar, and it's like, why is Godzilla fighting Jet Jaguar? He was always an ally. Uh, then followed up appropriately with Megalon. Then uh, Gizora, the giant squid from Yogg, who you also fight in the NES uh, Godzilla game. Again, Ganymede, who is the uh, the crab from Yogg. Then after Ganymede, you fight Gorosaurus, and then the final boss is Mecha King Ghidorah. And the fifth and final stage is Tokyo. Uh, first, you fight the uh, Mechagodzilla flying. Uh, it's the show of Mechagodzilla. Then you actually fight the fake Godzilla. And it's like, okay, shouldn't you fight fake Godzilla before you fight Mechagodzilla? Because then the next fight is Mechagodzilla standing up. So I'm not really sure how that works, but that's okay. Uh, after Mechagodzilla, you fight Varan. And uh, then he's followed up by Titanosaurus. Next is Rodan. And then the final, final boss is Super Mechagodzilla himself, which is appropriate as the game came out in 1993, which was the year that Super Mechagodzilla uh, debuted, which is the Hesai Mechagodzilla combined with the Garuda. Um, interesting thing about this is that the way Godzilla is animated, his head is a different sprite from the rest of his body. So what this translates to is that the Game Boy Color conversion does not work very well at all. Uh, what you do is whenever you pick a palette, those two sprites don't match. So you get uh, his body is one color and then his head is another color and it just doesn't look very good. Uh, it, it looks kind of doopy. Uh, you know, so I end up playing this one just either in the gray or the yellow uh, uh, monotone that was normal uh, for the Game Boy. Another interesting thing is that we get Ifukube music, MIDI forms of it, during the uh, cutscenes and the title scenes and the end screen, but during the actual game, uh, you get just kind of you know original music, which isn't all that great to be honest. It's not as good as the music from the uh, from the puzzle game, and it also doesn't help that, you know, it's there's a stomping sound effect every time Godzilla takes a step, so it kind of gets drowned out a little bit. Uh, the, the the MIDI music for the Ifukube stuff is really nice, though. Um, the game is, is really tough, despite the fact that Godzilla can regenerate just by standing still. This game is built on patterns, and if you do not recognize and immediately connect with the patterns of the monsters that you're fighting, you will get stuck in an infinite loop and not be able to escape. Uh, and it's only got three continues, so this is a very difficult game. I've actually never beaten it. I've made it to Nagoya, to level 4. I've never beaten level 4, and I've never even made it to level 5, so... But, you know, that, that's typical of the era as well. It used to be that, you know, NES games, if you could beat them, it was like, oh, wow, he beat that. Nowadays, they want you to beat the game real fast, so you'll go sell it back to GameStop. Uh, concept that doesn't make any sense, but that's neither here nor there. As a pick-up-and-play game, I think this is this is fun. It's lots of fun just to stomp through the cities and smash buildings and fight monsters. But that fun can get hampered by the somewhat stiff controls. Again, I said this earlier, it's typical of a Japanese giant monster game. I don't know why this is. That they all seem to have, you know, especially from this era, kind of, you know, sloppy controls. So that can put a damper on it, but I think most Godzilla fans are not going to really mind that so much. 
because it was never imported to the U.S., it's harder to find online as if you want a physical copy. You can find a ROM fairly easily, which is, how again, how I do it. Uh, definitely worth tracking down, especially given that it was never sold over here, and there is probably a good portion of fans who had never actually played it. Uh, I think this game's a lot of fun. I think you should, if you're listening to this show and you like portable gaming, definitely check out uh, King of the Monsters Godzilla. The last game we're going to be talking about is for is Godzilla the Series, which was developed by Crawfish Interactive and published by Crave in 1999 for the Game Boy and Game Boy Color. Now, you may not realize it, but there was three distinct generations of the original Game Boy. Um, there were multiple releases in there. The original Game Boy uh, had, was monochrome only and had the gray cartridges. So if you have a gray Game Boy cartridge, it'll play in monochrome, and you can use Super Game Boy uh, color palettes on it if you have something that supports that. When the Game Boy Color was released, there was a period where the original Game Boy and the Game Boy Color overlapped, and those cartridges are the same size and shape as original, but they're black. And that means if you play it on a regular Game Boy, it'll be monochrome. Play it on a Game Boy Color, it'll be in color. Godzilla the series falls into that category. Uh, the Game Boy Color cartridges are different shaped. They have a, uh, a rounded top, so they won't actually fit into a, an original uh, monochrome Game Boy, and they are Game Boy Color only. So this game, like I said, it's a black cartridge, so it can be played on either a monochrome uh, Game Boy or a Game Boy Color. I bought this when I was in college, and I was playing it on my Game Boy Color at the time. Uh, this was before the GBA was released. Uh, the game is, story is that Godzilla travels across the globe with the Heat team as they investigate various strange goings-on and happenings, including monsters and a strange paramilitary army that seems to keep attacking them. Like a shooting game, Zilla walks left to right constantly, unable to control his pace or forward progress. He starts with two attacks, his fireball and his tail whip, and as you earn more points, you get access to additional attacks, and then all the attacks you have start getting upgraded and getting more powerful. The fireball is aimed by moving the D-pad to aim Godzilla's head up and down. Actually, you get a full range of motion that you can aim the fireball through. Enemies come at you in waves. The gameplay is, like I said, very typical of your standard shooter, uh, like Gradius or R-Type, or Thunder Force, if you're a Genesis guy. Except Godzilla can't dodge. He, he takes up almost the entire height of the screen. He can only cover up and guard. You can't guard forever because you've got a guard meter that drains constantly as you're covering up. Yeah, but when you're guarding, you don't take damage. So it's kind of like a shooter where you can't move your... Uh, ship, uh, if you follow my analogy. You can just aim and guard. Uh, you have to, the, the gameplay basically is you have to time your attacks and aiming of your fireballs to hit the enemies. Uh, if you do your attack too soon, you'll miss them, and if you don't aim right, the fireball will sail right past them. It's not an overly difficult game because the enemies. You know, the, the military enemies that you're attacked with don't do a tremendous amount of damage with each attack. Uh, bosses are more of a challenge. We'll talk about them in a, in a minute. It, it's, like I said, it, it's a game that it's kind of challenging for your spatial relation uh, center when, of gameplay where you're trying to figure out how to aim and how to time. But it's not like you're getting attacked by wave after wave after wave of enemies all at once and you've got to, you know, string a bunch of attacks together. It more seems to be, here's a series of enemies, how do you tackle this wave? And then here comes another and here comes another. Uh, the animation is really good in this game. Zilla his moves very smoothly. Like I said, he covers about almost the entire height of the screen. Uh, there's only a little bit above his head that is, uh, you know, from the top of his head to the top of the screen. The enemies are, are on the smaller side, but they're nicely drawn and they're very well animated. The bosses are very big and nicely animated. There's uh, Some bosses are monsters, and some are large, like, super weapons. And they all move around the screen nicely. Um, the only problem, really, with the boss fights is they're all at range. Uh, there's no grappling or close combat, so the boss fights all tend to be just, they shoot at you, you, you guard, you fire back with a fireball. And while you're moving through the background, again, like a shooter, you never interact with it. In King of the Monsters Godzilla, you could knock down buildings and, and other structures. Here, you just march right in front of it. And given Zilla's propensity, especially on Godzilla the series, to climb up buildings, I would have liked more interaction with the background. 
Also, even though Zilla looks really nice and he takes up most of the screen, you never actually see him fully on the screen. He uh, stands about halfway on the screen and halfway off. So during normal gameplay, right about at hip, like, like you draw a vertical line up uh, Zilla's hips, right behind his legs, that is off the screen. So you never see his full tail or everything on the screen, except when he does his tail whip where he stops and he whips his tail. And then he goes back off the screen again. It's kind of a cop-out, really, but it works. And, and you know, I'm willing to let it go, because had they put him fully on the screen, there's no way we could have ever seen any of the enemies. It would have been just impossible to make this game work in the way that it is. Uh, this game has a sequel, which is called Godzilla Monster Wars, which is very similar in gameplay. And, meh, the verdict, it's a decent game. The idea of Godzilla as a shooting game is a very novel one, but I would rank this below... Uh, the Godzilla puzzle game, and King of Monsters Godzilla, and just sheer fun. Uh, it's worth trying if you can find it, but I wouldn't go crazy. I bought this new one um, on summer break when I was in college, and I played a lot of it. I had a lot of fun playing it. And it's still a fun game. I'll still pick it up just to, you know, stomp through a couple of stages. Uh, I don't... In one sense, I like that you earn all your attacks as you go, because you don't have access to the full arsenal, but that does kind of limit it for a pick-up-and-play sort of game. And being a game that could be either Game Boy or Game Boy Color, it uses passwords, so there's no battery to save your progress, so you've either got to keep some paper handy to write down the password, or you're just restarting every time, which can get annoying. Still a good game. I've actually beaten this one. This one is, I have beaten it. Uh, you know, there's been, I'm sure there was multiple nights that I probably should have been doing homework that I instead sat on my Game Boy playing Godzilla series when I was in school, but yet I still managed to graduate, so dig with that information what you will. Uh, so there you go, a trio of uh, fun Godzilla portable games. Uh, you track them down on eBay, or you can just probably get ROMs for them at this point. Uh, and you know, I mean, I always keep my game, my GBA handy. It's right by my uh, my night table all the time if I just need to, you know, just pick it up and play a little bit and just you know relax. I'm not I'm not into modern video games a lot. The most advanced system I have is a PS2. And I've only got, like, four games for it, and one of them is Fire Pro Wrestling, so, you know, who do you? But I'm more of an old-school gamer, so these old-school games really appeal to me. And, you know, sometimes if uh, you can mix old-school gaming with the King of the Monsters, I mean, what's not to like, right? Uh, I think I've talked enough about uh, these uh, Game Boy games, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge evil. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. Okay, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive, and now we're going to be talking about... Shogun Warriors number two. Shogun Warriors number two, cover dated March 1978 from the Marvel Comics Group, is still only 35 cents, as it says from the cover. And the issue, issue is entitled Warriors 3. Our writer is Doug Mensch, artist Herb Trimpey, inker Dan Green, letterer Jim Novak, colorist Andy Yankus, editor Al Milgram, editor in chief Jim Shooter. Back at Shogun Sanctuary, our heroes, Genji Odashu, Ilongo Savage, and Richard Carson, believe that their encounter with the monster Rock Core was a failure, but Dr. Tambura assures them that through their efforts, the city was spared further damage. Tambura then introduces them to the other two Shogun warriors, Kambatra and Dangard Ace. Taking the elevator down to the maintenance chamber, Tambura runs the three warriors through their paces, showing off their combat abilities. Dangard Ace is armed with photon spheres launched from his chest, as well as a rocket fist. Raideen shows off his bow and missile arrows to go with his breaker blade, and Kombatra has a strong armor hide and missiles in his fingertips. Meanwhile, on a volcanic island in the Pacific, Lord Maurikon schemes, using the hot blood of the earth to give new orders to Rock Kor, still in his volcanic form after his fight with Raideen. The renewed threat is monitored at Shogun Sanctuary, and the heroes are assigned their warriors. Carson is linked with Raideen, Genji is paired with Kombatra, and Savage is matched with Dangard Ace. After launching from the Sanctuary, 
Carson tries out Rydeen's Firehawk mode, transforming and speeding ahead to intercept Rockcore near a trestle bridge. Rockcore manages to trash the bridge, right as a train is approaching, of course. But right as Dangard Ace and Combatra arrive, Rydeen saves the train from crashing, leading the other two to wonder if Carson even needs them. Lord Mauricon is not pleased with this development, casting a spell to multiply Rockcore into his three base elements, Earth, Fire, and Water. The Shogun warriors now face down their renewed foes, and things look bleak for our heroes. Next issue, the final phase of the Shogun warriors' baptism of fire, not to mention earth and water, in Elements of Destruction. All right, uh, here we go right into this. Right on the cover, we uh, get some all-out combat with uh, Rockcore uh, grabbing a hold of Rydeen while Dangard Ace and Kombatra are running to join the fray. Uh, kind of interesting, we only see Kombatra from behind in the, on the cover. Uh, but otherwise, very good cover, again, showing off all the warriors. This time we get to see them all uh, in full color and not just in, uh, in silhouette like we did on the first cover for uh, uh, Dangard Ace and Kombatra. Uh, page one, um, coming at you is all I gotta say for this. It's a it's a, a big splash page with um, Combatra, Riding, and Dangard Ace all kind of running right at the uh, reader. Really a good showcase uh, for all three Shoguns. We get our first really good look at the two new ones on Combatra and Dangard Ace, and they look uh, they look real good. I mean, Herb Trimpey I think does a real good job on this book of making the robots look a lot like their original. Japanese selves, but kind of put through that Marvel Bronze Age lens. So very nice. I like this uh, this splash page very good. Not not as much uh, action on this splash page as there was for the one in the previous issue with Riding fighting Rockcore, but this is this would have made a good cover as well. And that's always a sign of a good splash page. Page two. Uh, panel three, we get some uh, interesting force perspective shots as the uh, the proverbial camera is up high above the heads of Kombatra and Dangard Ace, looking down at the very small figures of Dr. Tambura, uh, Carson, Savage, and um, Genjura. And uh, it's just it's neat to see, again, the, the size and scale of these robots. I mean, they are super robots. They are giant. And uh, it's a very nice job uh, by Trimpey to show us that, that perspective to, to uh, you know, really sell the size of these uh, machines. Uh, again, uh, like we got this similar type of shot in the first issue, it really looks like uh, Trimpey was given some uh, toys for the reference. Um, the rail straight arms and just the way that these guys look, it looks like he had either the toys themselves or pictures of the toys as photo reference for the first time that he was drawing these guys. Page three, as our heroes and the robots take the big, big elevator ride down underneath the sanctuary, we get an interesting uh, cross-sectional shot of the sanctuary showing that underneath the uh, the building, it sits on top of a gigantic cavern. I mean, this cavern is easily, uh, you know, if you stood uh, the shoguns on top of their shoulders, you could fit all three of them in there and still have room for some more to boot. So these are very... A uh, very big cavern underneath here, which is is interesting. It gives an idea of the scale of the Shogun Sanctuary, and, and you gotta love a giant elevator. You know, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? I mean, what do you have to? I mean, where do you go get a contractor to build an elevator big enough to to move a hundred foot tall robot? You know, that's not something you can look up on on Angie's list. I think, you know, although I've never tried. Maybe you can. I don't know. Uh, page six. As the Shoguns are getting ready to uh, demonstrate their abilities, <laughs> there, there's a shot of them walking into the training area. There is a safety sign. I love that. Apparently OSHA has come through and reviewed the Shogun Sanctuary. There's a little yellow sign that says, Remain inside control module when testing is in progress. And you know they're serious because they have an exclamation point. Um, I've, been, I've been on an, an active construction site for just shy of a year now from for work and we have safety regulations and personal protective equipment regulations and work permits that we need to fill out and depending on what you're doing you got to do different things so seeing safety stuff like this in a comic book really made me smile i, I had to laugh at that uh, and again this also gives us a, a more imagery of the the scale of the shogun sanctuary that there's this gigantic almost danger room type um training area underneath it that for giant robots so that was that was pretty neat uh page seven we start to see uh, uh mench run through all of the abilities of the shogun warriors showing us all their different weapons uh, up first is dangard ace who fires uh 
they call them photon spheres from his chest. And uh, it looks just like two fireballs firing out of his chest. The uh, This is a weapon that Dangard Ace had, I'm pretty sure, in the anime, so that's appropriate. So he, uh, you know, very nicely done here. And then, on the last panel of page 7, we get the Rocket Fist. And anyone who is a fan of the Shogun Warriors toys, or uh, Super Robot toys in general, knows about the uh, the Rocket Fist. And these were, on, on certain scales of the toys, they would have spring-loaded fists, and you would press the button, they would launch their fist off. And so a lot of times you'll find Shogun Warriors without their fists, because obviously these were relatively small and easier to lose. So I love that it's here, uh, and, and directly referenced. I also love that the, the wall that Dangard Ace is firing his, his photon spheres and rocket fist against is target monolith number 7. How many target monoliths do they have? And considering that he completely obliterates it, do they is this the seventh one and they've just kept rebuilding it, or do they have a bunch just laying around? You know, these these questions are not answered. And really, I don't know why I'm asking them other than this is what I think of when I'm reading comic books, because I'm apparently insane. Um, page ten, uh, Rydeen, who we got a good primer on Rydeen's abilities last issue, but one thing we didn't get, uh, which was a very prominent aspect of Rydeen, um, Rydeen from the anime, was his bow and arrow. And so we get a, a couple of panels here of Rydeen showing off exactly how his bow pops out of his left arm and he can pull the arrow back. And uh, what's interesting here is that the uh, the arrow is specially called a missile arrow. And it says that each is equipped with a warhead containing five sequential detonations. And they show him hitting five uh, target drones in a row. And it's bouncing between all of them. So I thought that was neat. Kind of more than just a uh, just a straight missile being launched. It has a little bit of smarts in it as well. Page 11, Combatra gets his turn to shine. And the, they show off his defense here, which is just really strong armor. So it's just him getting shot three times. I was like, that's kind of a cop-out. You know, the other guys get all the neat stuff, and he's just got, oh, he's got really strong armor. But they make up for it, though, because next thing he shows off is he's got missiles that fire out of his fingertips, kind of like Mechagodzilla. So those are cool. I mean, I always like missiles firing out of fingertips, so they make up for it. Page 14, we cut over to the bad guys, and oh my gosh, Lord Maurikan looks insane. This uh, is a full-page... Uh, panel of Maurikan in almost extreme close-up, and he's got this insane lunatic face here. And years before uh, uh, Rob Liefeld, it almost looks like he's got the drool in between the two layers of teeth. I think it's actually supposed to just be the back of his throat, but the way it looks, it kind of implies the, the crazy, frothing, screaming, drool-connected teeth look that was very popular in the 90s. He also was wearing an absolutely ridiculous hat that is at least two times as tall as his head is. It looks like something that a Chaos Dwarf would wear, if you're familiar at all with Chaos Dwarves from the Warhammer universe from Games Workshop. Uh, the joke is, is that the Chaos Dwarves, the taller your hat, the more important you are. And so Lord Maurikan would probably rule the entire Chaos Dwarf nation with this hat. It's I mean, it's tall, it's got horns on it, it's got pieces flying every which direction. I mean, this looks like something that Jack Kirby would have uh, gone with in the old days of Thor. Like, maybe some, an alternate hat for Loki if he wanted to go out on the town or something. Uh, it's, yeah, it's strange. Uh, again, we get a whole bit where uh, Maurikan sends orders to uh, Rakor using the hot blood of the Earth, which I will always love. It just seems incredibly cool every time we see it. <laughs> Page 16, um, Genji asks a very strange question. She asks Dr. Tambora about how the uh, members of the Shogun Sanctuary have survived and how they've been breeding. She says, for example, you say your people have been sentinels for untold generations and that you're the last of the line. Well, what about the future? I noticed there was only one woman among you, and then Tambora cuts her off. <laughs> he says, I explained that we followers of the light are not true Terrans. Our descendants will be the results of parthenogenesis. He goes, cloning and uh, other scientific methods. To which Carson says, say what? He goes, oh, well, I prefer the old-fashioned way. And it's like, oh, really? Really, guys? This is a code book. 
did we really need to get into that in our code book about giant robots based on toys? Couldn't we have just just let it go? I don't need to know that Carson uh, prefers the old way. I prefer to think of my uh, characters in this book as completely devoid of sex and simply existing to pilot giant robots because they are, in fact, constructs of fiction, and that's what they do exist for. Moving along, page 17, Tambora gives everyone their assignments as to which Shogun warrior they're going to be pilot, uh, piloting. There is a really neat three-panel um, sequence across the bottom where we get uh, cross-sectional pictures of each of the robot. Now, it's just kind of uh, detail, you know, mechanical detail. There's no, um, you know, captions or anything showing what each part is. But it is neat that they took the time to uh, show us some of the internal mechanics of each robot. And they're, they're not uh, the same. You know, each one looks a little bit different, has a little slightly different design on it. Riding has a lot of rounded and curved shapes. Um, Dangard Ace is more looks more like a printed circuit board. And then Combatra has more you know, rectangles and hard, hard lines and stuff. Very neat as uh, each uh, member gets assigned to their, to their robot. Um, page 22, we are briefly introduced to a couple other members of the Followers of the Light. Uh, we at least get to hear some names. We uh, meet Sherna and Charn. Uh, Sherna is the female member who uses the shimmer tubes, which are kind of like little teleportation tubes to launch the, uh, the pilots up into their uh, shoguns. And then Churn is a, uh, looks like kind of a, a middle-aged fat man in a suit who comes into. Uh, uh, warn Dr. Tambora that the uh, Rakor has destroyed the mountain trestle. Uh, Rakor's attack on the trestle is pretty neat. He blasts it with hot magma from his mouth and sends it uh, shattering to pieces with the great uh, sound effect of Fatoom! I love old school sound effects like that. We don't really learn anything about the other two members other than that here they are and their names are Sherna and Charn. Uh, and we do get to, uh, but at least they're trying to expand it a little bit, not just Dr. Tambora and some nameless extras. Also on this page, we uh, take we see that they have jet cycles. Uh, in addition to their uniforms, the pilots of the Shoguns also get motorcycles that they use to uh, drive over to the launch silo. It's like, again, this could be construed as silly, but the no prize that I thought of is, well, obviously this place is gigantic. They've shown us that all throughout the issue. Clearly they would need motorcycles to get from the training area to the uh, launch bay that quickly. Motorcycles are neat. They, the one that we see is Carson's. It actually looks kind of like riding because it's got kind of a bird thing going on with some blue wings coming out the, uh, the side. So uh, very neat and a nice little, uh, again, something that could have been omitted, but a nice little touch here. Uh, let's see, page 26, Rydeen transforms into his Firehawk mode. Now, Rydeen was one of the, f I think it may actually have been the first transforming robot toy in Japan. This is years and years before what would eventually become Transformers, uh, which was m mostly the Diaclone line from Takara along with the Microman or Microchange line, uh, or some whatever, what would become the GoBots in the U.S., which was... Uh, the Machine Robo uh, line. So this is, is very neat, and it's and it's really a nice uh, three-panel uh, sequence here where he transforms into Firehawk. Now, the riding transformation into Firehawk is really not all that impressive. Uh, like most transforming robots from the 70s, it's kind of, you know, just fold the robot up and hope. Uh, so, but it looks nice, and it looks a lot like the toy when he when he actually deploys it. And then on page 27, when he attacks Rockcore, he lands, and you see the reverse of the transformation. So I thought that was very nice. But again, just again considering that Marvel would have a a, a much more successful licensed comic with Transformers. A few years after this, it was neat to see a transforming robot in a licensed comic from Marvel before Transformers. Um, let's see, page 30, Rydeen once again breaks out his breaker blade, putting it to great effect as he uh, uh, jams it right under Rockcore's uh, chin and sends him flying back right before saving the train, of course, in the nick of time. I like the breaker blade. I like that they're keeping it as the little short sword on the shield. Uh, I'm pretty sure in the anime that he could make the breaker blade glow really long, but I haven't seen enough of the anime to, to know one way or the other. Uh, page 31, as Malakon casts a spell to split Rockcore into the elements, uh, we get the final panel here, shows all three the earth, fire, and water uh, monsters as Rockcore takes on his elemental forms. Very neat little cliffhanger, and I really like the lighting here because the, the fire uh, version of Rockcore is right in the middle, and so he's sending an orange glow 
through the rest of the panel. And so we see the, the, the backs of the Shogun warriors from about their shoulders up, and they're just bathed in this yellow light because they're in the, you know, being hit by the light cast by the fire rock core. Not not much action this time out, but the training sequence was nice. It, Stan Lee had said that he created the Danger Room in the X-Men comics so he could always open a book with uh, an action sequence. And we don't open with it here, but it, it's a good, a good excuse to give us an action sequence in this. And it does introduce us very nicely to Combatra and Dangardes and make us a little bit more familiar with Rydine, uh from the previous issue. Um, we also get some more with Mawakon. We learn a little bit more about his deal, and we get some scenes with him, and we get to learn this guy, you know, he he's kind of, uh, you know, knocking futs. He's he's really out there. The crazy hat might be the best example of that. Uh, I, re- I like the issue. Again, it's not as action-oriented as the first one, but a very typical sort of Bronze Age Marvel book. Gives us some characters, gives us know a little bit about them, and still works in you know, really two action sequences, because there is the short fight against uh, uh, Rockcore at the end, and then a great cliffhanger as, you know, very conveniently the monster splits into three elements to battle the three Shogun warriors. So, again, if I'm reading this in 1978 as a kid, buying this off the newsstand, I get to that last page, and I'm like, oh man, I hope I can find number three of Shogun warriors. Interestingly, we do, in fact, get not one, but two Shogun Warriors-related ads in here. We do get the house ad for the Shogun Warriors, which comes right after page uh, 7, and it's got um, Dengardes, Rydine, and Combatra standing amidst the cityscape, and they, uh, it says, There shall come a day when Titans walk the earth, Titans dedicated to defending our world from the dark forces of evil. There shall come the Shogun Warriors. Every month, Doug Mench and Herd Trimpey join forces to portray the incredible saga of Rydine, Combatra, and Dangard Ace. Only Marvel could produce such a power-packed epic. Don't miss it. So that's very neat. And then later on, we get, um, after page 17, we get an ad for, uh, let's see, it's, it's a subscription ad. And it's a subscription ad for Shogun Warriors and Micronauts, which were the two licensed books. So that was pretty interesting. And then apparently if you subscribe, uh, you get free the Marvel Special Edition of Battlestar Galactica, the Marvel Super Special, in full dazzling color, $1.50 value free. So, I, I don't know, I mean, you always hear people talk about the Micronauts. I've never read that comic. Uh, and interestingly, on the page right next to this is the house ad for the Micronauts. It came from inner space. Uh, but a lot of people, I know Sh- uh, Scott Gardner usually has good things to say about the Micronauts uh, comic. And, and I've, I've read about the character Bug when he showed up in Guardians of the Galaxy, but I've never read Micronauts. The toys were a little before my time, and they don't have the same connection to me like the Shoguns do for the, the giant uh, Daikaiju aspect. I might have to check them out. I know a lot of people have good things to say about it. I just think it's great that they're paired up here. Because everybody who's a current Marvel fan seems to at least remember, oh yeah, the Micronauts, I remember them, but most of them have no idea that they did the Shoguns. So, very cool. And of course, I have read the Marvel Super Special of Battlestar Galactica, but I read it in the um, mass market paperback size. So, uh, Also this time out, we get a Hostess ad. And this Hostess ad stars the Incredible Hulk. The Incredible Hulk changes his mind. And uh, I'm going to attempt to do a dramatic reading here. So, scene. All Hulk wants is to be left alone. Why do puny humans hound Hulk? Ah, humans even follow Hulk here. You are just a boy, not big enough to bother Hulk. Why would I want to bother you? You want people to leave you alone? I can take care of that. Whoever is in there is friendly, tossing us these delicious hostess cupcakes. Mmm, smooth chocolatey icing. Moist devil's food cake. Boy, not very big, but very smart. I'm glad I packed enough hostess cupcakes. Today, Hulk thinks humans okay. Hulk may change Hulk's mind tomorrow. I'll never change my mind about hostess cupcakes. They're always great. You get a big delight in every bite of hostess cupcakes. Always great to see Hostess ads. I wish they had done a Hostess ad with the Shogun Warriors. That would have been something. Although, since they never did a Hostess ad with Firestorm, I doubt the Shogun Warriors would have had much shot. Hi, Shag. 
Uh, <laughs> if you listen to the Fire and Water podcast, you'll 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 understand that. Uh, so yeah, that finishes up Shogun Warriors number two. Again, I I enjoyed the issue. Again, uh, not as action packed as the first issue, but still a lot of fun. Classic Bronze Age Marvel meets classic Super Robot anime. I mean, what more could you ask for if you're a robot fan at all? So, uh, we will cover Shogun Warriors number three next time out. But right now, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back on Earth Destruction Directive. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You are changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And half mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're but palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You earthlings can't change the way I can. Got these are the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak. Blind or hulk. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain until it has been drained of all elemental life. So, speak Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.Libsyn. Com. Okay, and we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Before I get into emails, and we actually do have some emails, I do want to give a special shout-out to uh, the crew behind the scenes at our new home, 2TrueFreaks.com. Uh, if you're listening to this episode, you got it from 2TrueFreaks.com, and I thank you very much for going there. Uh, you can go to iTunes now and subscribe not only to the entire 2 True two true freaks feed but you can subscribe to feeds for individual shows as well so say um you know you only want to get the feed for back to the bins because you don't have uh you know necessarily the time to listen to all of our fine quality podcasts to which i ask why not but say you only want to get back to the bins or you only want to get our destruction directive you only want to get star trek monthly monday star wars monthly monday uh hope of all trades hey kids comics uh, just one of the guys, whatever. Uh, you can go there and subscribe to just that feed, or you can do like me, listen to every show on the network, and get that feed as well. But I do want to give a shout-out to, uh, the, like I said, the crew behind the scenes, who are Mike Voiles, Kelly Logue, and J. David Weeder, who have done a great job in putting together this site and getting it up and running. Uh, we had <laughs> we had a technical conference call a couple weeks ago where we talked about the uh, the, the how-fors and why-nots of, uh, of the site, and they said, oh, we're giving full control over to you guys and I said you really want to give that over to podcasters you know we're not the most technically minded people sometimes but they've done a really great job I love the site I love the, uh, the all the cataloging that I've done you can find any show very easily on this it's a lot frankly a lot better than the way that Libsyn had it as far as trying to search for an older show so uh, kudos to you guys and thank you very much everyone here at Destruction Directive which is translated to me really appreciate your efforts and uh, want to give you a shout out for that now as I said we have some feedback in the form of emails and uh, if you would like to email the show just hang around to the end and I will give you the address in the outro our first email comes from Jason Trenner, who goes by Fanboyimus Prime on the Forum for Geeks uh, Two True Freaks board, and his email is titled, You Wanted an Email? You Got It! Jason writes, I loved listening to all the comic... Let's try that again. Jason writes, I loved listening to the all-comics episode of Earth Destruction Directive. 
First off, I have to agree on the strength of the Space Godzilla's design. I got one of those Trendmasters roaring Space Godzillas out of a Toys R Us bargain bin just on the strength of the look. And what he's talking about, when Trendmasters had the Godzilla license, they made the, like, 5-inch tall monsters, and then they made some 12-inch tall ones. And I'm not sure if um, if Jason is referring to the... 5-inch tall roaring ones or the 12-inch tall roaring ones, but those 12-inch ones, they were around forever. I mean, forever you could find those things in Toys R Us. I have the 5-inch ones. I don't have any 12-inch ones. And the Space Godzilla from Trendmasters looks fantastic. I've always liked Space Godzilla. That Trendmasters one looks really nice. Jason continues, Second, the IDW comics were interesting and fun. You said pretty much all that needed to be said on the characters and the monsters. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed our coverage. We're going to have some more of that once, the ser- once this series finishes up, and the new before the new series starts, I'll finish up on, uh, uh, on the second IDW series, and that way we'll be a little closer to being caught up. Jason continues, Third, I am glad to finally have the Shogun Warriors reviewed somewhere. With some ironies in the issue when we finally see the final fate of the giant robots and who defeated them and who defeated that person. Uh, Yes, I know what Jason's referring to here. We'll get to that much later down the road, but uh, very good, astute point, Jason. Uh, Very nice. And he closes by saying, Hope this hitting your inbox was a joy, and it certainly was. Jason, thank you very much for writing in. You know, I... When I found that Shogun Warriors number one comic, it was at Charlotte Minicon, and I never even realized that they did, Marvel did, a Shogun Warriors comic. I was like, I've got to get this, and I've got to cover this. And I've gotten a lot of good feedback on that, so I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. I'm having a blast reading Shogun Warriors. I've read ahead a few issues. It's a lot of fun. So I'm really enjoying talking about it on the show. Jason, thank you very much for writing in. Really appreciate it, man. Our next email, actually was a PM sent to me through the board, is from Mr. Bill Lomax and is entitled Feedback for Episode 19. You'll remember, of course, that Mr. Lomax was our guest on our uh, first Ultraman episode, and rest assured, we will have more Ultraman episodes with uh, Mr. Lomax, and hopefully we can get all of our audio recording issues sorted. Bill Bill writes, Hey Luke, I really enjoyed the last few episodes of the show. Sorry that I haven't sent any feedback in before. I wanted to, but I had a bad case of writer's block trying to express my thoughts in a coherent manner. Bill, don't worry about being coherent. I mean, you listen to the show, right? I mean, I'm not coherent half the time, and I'm the host. Bill continues, Anyway, I can describe the current IDW Godzilla run in one simple sentence. Jason Statham and his A-team take on the Toho Kaiju Pantheon. And Bill is 100% correct with that assessment. He continues, You would think that this would be a horrible idea, but it works really well in this series. Each issue so far has been paced out really well, with a good balance of human drama and monster-on-monster city-smashing brawls. And I definitely agree with you on that one, Bill. There... There was just something missing from Kingdom of Monsters, and then when I read this series, it hit me. What was missing was the monsters! For a book titled Kingdom of the Monsters, they didn't seem to be interested in telling stories about the monsters. And Here we get a lot of human stuff in these IDW books, but the monsters are never far away. You know, Even the, the issue where Boxer and his team are hanging out and staking out Vancouver for like a couple of months... You know, Godzilla's always kind of that ever-present threat in the background, so I've really enjoyed this series. Bill continues, At first glance, I thought that the art style was a bad fit for this series, but it grew on me after a few issues. All the covers are awesome, too. I'd love to have a poster of issue number one's cover featuring Godzilla's foot stomping down at the top of the page with his reflection in the puddle at the bottom. Yes! Hell yes, because I have that cover, and of all the covers for number one, and there were a bunch, that one I think is the best. It's just just such an odd angle to see Godzilla at. It's a very cinematic look. I really like that. That would make a very nice poster. You are very correct. Bill continues, if Dwayne Swierzynski, who, uh, just as an aside, you'll remember is the writer of the... uh, IDW Godzilla series, is listening to this, I have two suggestions to make this title even more awesome. Number one, needs more Mazer cannons. Is there any comic book, this is Luke as an aside, is there any comic book that will not be improved by adding more Mazer cannons? You know, if, if, if you can think of one, I'd love to hear it, because more Mazer cannons always equals better. 
And now number two, Bill continues, have Paul Kersey join Boxer's team. He can use his 475 Wildy Magnum loaded with cadmium bullets to try and take down the big G. <laughs> you know, I've often said that the internet loves Chuck Norris, but you know who's more badass than Chuck Norris? Charles Bronson. Even though he's dead, Bronson is still more badass than Chuck Norris. And I don't know, uh, you know, Kersey versus Godzilla, that's a tough call. I love both of them so much. That, that's hilarious. Bill continues, thank you for covering the Shogun Warriors on the podcast. I'm a big fan of 70s and early 80s era of super robot anime and manga. My favorites are Gigantor and Mazinger Z. Let me make an aside here about Gigantor. Now, Bill, if I'm wrong on this, let me know, but I'm pretty sure that Gigantor's name in Japan was Tetsujin 28 which is always very amusing to me because one of my favorite tokusatsu robots from the same era was the Toei robot Daitetsujin 17, known better in the West and dubformed as Brain 17. So I always thought it was funny that we had Daitetsujin, which is giant Iron Man 17, and then Tetsujin 28, which is Iron Man 28. I just thought it was funny that we had two robots with a similar name like that. Uh, the similars kind of end there beyond them being sort of of that same vein with the young boy controlling the giant robot, but, you know, one was a tokusatsu and one was an anime and so forth. Uh, he continues, While the pilot's origins and overall plot is different from the manga and anime of each robot, the overall concept and story structure is keeping in line with the style of that era. Strong first battle as well. I loved Herb Trimpey's art on G.I. Joe, and it was great seeing it in this first issue as well. Great cover also. Writing is looking the boss, as the young kids say these days. Bill, I, I agree. I, I mean, I think so far this book has been a lot of fun. Uh, Herb Trimpey just does a great job with these robots, which is something kind of out of his normal... Um, uh, work, but I think really comes across very nicely, and writing looks great. I really like writing. I think the way that you like Mazinger Z, I kind of have started to gravitate towards writing. So, yeah, that first cover is awesome. Bill continues, well, that's about it for this month. I hope I didn't ramble on too much. Don't worry about that. Again, I ramble on like crazy. Looking forward to the next episode. I will also try to post feedback on a more regular basis. Thanks again, Lomax. Always, always good to hear from you, sir. Really appreciate the email. And again, we're going to have you back on when we do another Ultraman episode and talk about some Kyodai heroes for, uh, you know, for uh, a couple hours. <laughs> oh, my God. All the stuff that we did on that show that didn't make it into the final cut. If you thought that was a long show, it was longer beforehand. Uh, finally, we have one more email. This comes from Mr. Chris, Chris Mounts and is titled Jackanetti. And Chris writes, that's it. I want your badge. Do you know how much property damage your little team up with Shag caused? The mayor is all over my ass. Who do you guys think you are? Tango and Cash? I'm giving you one more chance to bring in DeMonzo and shut down his scheme to smuggle Daikaiju into the mainland U.S. of A. God help us. Captain Christopher Mounts, Charleston PD. Well, you know what I got to say to you? Oh, yeah? Well, what about the rights of that little girl? Doesn't that account for anything anymore? <laughs> oh, man, Chris, this email really cracked me up. I had, that was hilarious when I got this. Thank you so much for sending that in. Uh, those who don't know, if you listen to the Fire and Water podcast, uh, which is a regular podcast of uh, my French, the uh, Irredeemable Shag, uh, they always refer to me as a cop on the edge, ready to go crazy, and that they're always going to take my badge away, like a bad 70s uh, police movie. So, uh, <laughs> this really cracked me up. And uh, uh, Chris Charleston, another South Carolina boy, Palmetto State, represent. Very nice. So, I want to thank everybody for writing in. Really great feedback this time. Uh, if you want, if you like the show, if you didn't like the show, please send in feedback. I love getting emails. This is a total labor of love for me, and this is really just affirmation that what I'm saying you guys are hearing and enjoying. So please keep them coming. All right, what are we going to talk about next time? That's always the question that I have to figure out. And even though we haven't done a movie in a little while, I thought about doing another movie, but I want to cover this before it gets too far away from its final release date. We are going to be taking a look at the five-part miniseries from IDW, uh, the... Godzilla, The Half-Century War, which was by James Stokoe, who did the art and the writing on this book. Very manga-style book that covers five decades of a uh, one-man's fight both for and with Godzilla. So, 
Uh, I'm looking forward to that. That's a really good miniseries, and we've covered the other miniseries that IDW has done, and, and I've enjoyed doing that. So this will be a lot of fun, I think. So uh, then we're going to get some other stuff coming up on the horizon. Like I said, we're going to be uh, wrapping up our coverage of the... Um, the second IDW Godzilla series with the last issues of that. We got another episode with covering more episodes of Ultraman with Lomax. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad, which was recently released on DVD here in the States. Uh, we've got a Gamera vs. Gauss coming up, and we've got some planned for the 25th episode that I think you guys are going to enjoy. So, we got some good stuff coming up on the horizon. I'm going to do my best to get them out on time, but you know what they say. You know how a podcaster's lying. His lips move. So, deal with that information what you will so i am going to sign off for right now hope everybody enjoyed the show come on back next time we're going to be talking about the half century war by idw and until then keep them stomping Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, we will read them on the show. If you'd like to visit our forum, you can head over to www.forumforgeeks.com and come on down to the Two True Freaks section. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Anything you buy during your next Amazon session after clicking that link will help keep the lights on here at Two True Freaks. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle Eljacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.